The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to More Than Amused podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another week with More Than Amuse. My name is Sadie. And I'm Stani. And it's April. Happy April with another <laughs> month with more women to talk about. Which is so nice. So wonderful. Even though Women's History Month has ended, we will continue. Yes. And I feel like I've officially decided that spring is my favorite season. Mm-hmm. Just as it's been warming up this year, I'm like, wow. I love the warmth and I love the sunshine. So happy April indeed. It's also nice because this is like the first April that hasn't been a pandemic Mm -hmm. April. Even though, of course, it's still there. It's not as like precedent. Yes. (laughs) So there's actually like people doing things. Is this your first April that's not a finals week looming April? Oh my gosh. Yes. That's nice. That is nice. This is my first non-finals week in a very long time. No wonder I feel so calm. You're like, wow, <laughs> usually spring is like the incoming of stress, but once you're out of school, yeah. it's, it's fine. You just get to enjoy yeah. the beautiful season. Just a beautiful time of year. That's awesome. What a great time to be alive. Indeed. Look at us. I had a really hard time deciding who I was going to do this month because we have a very long list that continues to get longer and longer. And most of the time it feels like I'm picking a name out of a hat. Yes. Out of (laughs) millions of people I could cover. But I found a really cool woman. Her name is Gertrude Case Breyer, and she's a photographer. Ooh, have we done a photographer? I don't think we have. Yeah, I think this is our first one. Awesome. Yeah, which is really exciting. And she was a very accomplished photographer. So for the state of the arts, I could dive into the entire history of photography, but then we would be here until May because her story is already like pretty long she -hmm. was very accomplished so I don't want to do it too much but basically if you want to look into it you can like capturing images and like derogotypes were a thing clear back in like the 1700s and 1820s So the idea of like getting image from real life was in the works for a very long time until they created a film in the mid 20th century, which became, of course, the revolutionary photography technique. And then, of course, you have like computer-based electronic digital cameras in the 1990s. But Gertrude Casebrier was in the 1850s. Oh, Yes. So she would have been in, 
it's like shortly after derogatite processes had moved just a little bit further. So it was like coalition process and photographic plates. So before film, but after the derogatype. Cool. For all of you who are wondering. And do I know a lot about this? No, I don't. <laughs> but... <laughs> but still cool. Yeah, but it wasn't at the point where she, like, had a camera she could, like, take around with her like we do with all of our cell phones or, like, digital cameras. Totally. But she was, like, at the point where they could actually develop photography more fully. So I'll try and, like, put some more history in here, but I highly encourage anyone who wants to look into the history of photography to do it. It's very long. So Gertrude Casebrier was born Gertrude Stanton on May 18th, 1852 in Fort Des Moines, Iowa. She also was born right around the time of the gold rush, which was a crazy time period to be alive in the United States. Yeah. The first discovery of gold happened at Sutter's Mill in California on January 24th, 1848. Mm -hmm. So just a few years before she was born. And that, of course, created the largest migration in United States history driving people from a dozen countries to create multi-ethnic societies and start the gold rush out west, which was a very big deal. And then you have the Pikes Peak Gold Rush, also known as the Colorado Gold Rush, which was a huge boom in gold prospecting and mining in Pikes Peak country, western Kansas territory, and southwestern Nebraska And that one started in July 1858, so just a few years after she was born. And lasted until the Colorado Territory was formed in 1861, which is a very big deal, a very long time. And that was pretty much just as crazy as the California Gold Rush, although less famous because it came after. Her mother's name was Muncie Boone Stanton, and her father, John W. Stanton, were a part of the second wave of this gold rush. He actually transported a sawmill to Golden, Colorado at the start of the gold rush, and then became a prospector in the Colorado gold rush. Oh, wow. Yes. And participants in this gold rush were known as the 59ers. Which is funny because I think the California ones were the 49ers. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> hilarious that they were just like, yeah, <laughs> we're, we'll keep with this theme. <laughs> and they also often used the motto Pikes Peak or Bust, which is funny because that's like such a common saying. Something that's funny about the Pikes Peak Gold Rush is that it was actually like 85 miles away from Pikes Peak. Oh. So not even like right next to it, but because like Pikes Peak was such a well-known and important landmark, Mm -hmm. they used that as like a reference for where they were headed. In 1860, Gertrude would have been only eight years old and she traveled with her mother and her younger brother to join her father in Colorado. So they moved from Iowa to Colorado to go be in the gold rush. Be a part of the gold rush. Dang. While her father was looking for gold, Her mother sold baked goods to the miners and panhandlers. And that same year in 1860, her father was elected the first mayor of Golden, Colorado. Wow. Which at the time was the capital of the Colorado Territory. There we go. Yeah, which makes sense because that's where all the people were. And then, of course, now we have Denver. Sadly, only four years later, her father died in 1864 And the family moved back to the east to Brooklyn, New York, where her mother opened a boarding house to support the family. 
she lived there for like two years before she moved to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania and attended a female school there. Oh, wow. Known as the Bethlehem Female Seminary, which was later named Moravian College, which is cool because it's actually the sixth oldest college in the United States. And it was the first to open its doors to women because it was founded as a boarding school for young women in the United States. Oh, no way. That is cool. So that's where she went to school. And that's pretty much all we know about the early years of her life. That's it for her childhood. But definitely exciting. Yeah, I was like, I feel like that's... I mean, tragic, of course, because, you know, her father's passing. But like, I don't know, to go be a part of the gold rush. Okay. Adventurous. Yes. And it definitely played an influence later on in her life. In 1874, apparently she had a romance that failed right before her 22nd birthday. I couldn't find any other information about it other than like... It didn't work out. It didn't work out. And so she ended up marrying a 28-year-old man as like a rebound. But then they were married. (laughs) That's unfortunate. His name was Edward Case Breyer. And he was extremely financially comfortable and socially well-placed. He was a shellac importer, which is very interesting. And he came from an aristocratic family in Germany. Oh, wow. So yeah, he was very well off. They had children very fast. Their first son was born a year after they were married. They had a daughter three years later. And then just two years later after that, they had their last daughter. So three kids very quickly. They moved to a farm in New Jersey because they wanted a healthier environment for their children rather than Brooklyn, New York, which is fair. She had kind of mixed feelings about marriage. The marriage provided her with financial stability, a home, and children that she loved. But throughout her career, she talked a lot of good about motherhood, but had nothing good to say about marriage. Oh, no. (laughs) Later, she actually wrote that she was miserable and said, if my husband has gone to heaven, I want to go to hell. He was terrible. Nothing was ever good enough for him. Oh, no. That is, I mean, I'm so sad that it was such a bad marriage, but like that is the funniest way of like, right. if my husband goes to heaven, I'd just rather go to hell. I'm good. Yep. She's like, I don't want anything to do with him. At the time, the divorce was considered extremely scandalous. So the two remained married. They actually remained married until he passed away. But they lived pretty separate lives after her last daughter was born. I think they just kind of viewed it as like, okay, our kids are born. We're done, you know, yeah. with the duties of marriage (laughs) I mean I guess yeah and this uh situation actually later inspired one of her (laughs) photographs she has a photo of two constrained oxen and it's titled yoked and muzzled marriage (laughs) (laughs) oh my god in 1915 which is really funny so however like as far as husbands go he could have been a lot worse He did support her financially and kind of just let her go and do her thing. She started attending art school at the age of 37. Oh, wow. Which is pretty crazy, actually, because most women in her day were settled into like social positions and just very comfortable with running a household at that time. Mm -hmm. But she decided to go back to school and... We don't know what motivated her to study art, but she became devoted to it wholeheartedly as, of course, it set the foundation for the rest of her life. She went back to Brooklyn in 1889 and attended the newly established Pratt Institute of Art and Design. 
Cool. Yes, which I'm sure, I mean, it was a new university then, but it's one of the most prestigious art and design colleges that there is in the country even today. So that's really cool that she was a very early part of that. One of her teachers was Arthur Wesley Doe, who was a very high in, highly influential artist and ended up like becoming a very good advocate for her he wrote a lot about her work and introduced her to other people she also this is kind of where she developed her style she learned about the theories of frederick froebel which some people may have heard of especially if they've studied like child development or early education he's the guy who invented kindergarten pretty much (laughs) oh wow okay (laughs) yeah so he came up with ideas about like learning play and education that leads to like development of children and their brains Mm. and so his like ideas of motherhood and child development influenced her and so she has a lot of photographs about a mother and a child they're really beautiful and then also at this time was the arts and crafts movement which do you know a lot about the arts and crafts movement no I don't I feel like that's one of the only ones that didn't transfer over into music because it like couldn't really. The arts and crafts movement was basically a rebellion against like machine and factory production because mm. that's when factories became a really big deal. And so they started making everything by hand Okay. again. It has like a lot of, I'm trying to think of how you would describe it. Like really intricate, like floral wallpaper. Kind of imagine that with like Mm. birds and fruit and stuff like that. Like handmade chairs became a really big thing again. Like tapestries. Like it's almost like with with all the factories and things being mass produced suddenly, it was almost like people were probably cleaving to the old right way of doing it. Yes, yes. Like things that looked obviously like handmade Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. There's a really popular artist named William Morris that's Mm -hmm. a part of the arts and crafts movement. A lot of his prints are for sale on like Etsy and stuff. It was a really big deal. But anyway, so she was very influenced by that, which is cool with photography, especially because photography is used by using a machine. Mm -hmm. But then she also did a lot of like... applied the arts and crafts movement to that. Yes. It's a really cool movement. So while she was at Pratt, she studied drawing and painting, but then quickly became obsessed with photography, which is interesting because she actually (laughs) was sort of a revolutionary for this she wanted to be associated with fine art and she loved her upper art classes but she wanted to earn a living which is funny because she had financial you know stability and backing yeah yes but she wanted to earn money from her art and that was like not the way that people wanted to look at art at that time period They thought it should be like arts for art's sake, especially she has a friend named Steiglitz who ends up playing a very important part. He's one of the most famous photographers at this time period. That name, yes. (laughs) Yeah. And he was a huge um, proponent of the idea that like art had to be for art's sake and not for anything else. Like even sometimes sacrificing money in order to have Create your art, yeah. Yeah, like the starving artist kind of idea and everything Mm. like that, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So that's happening. While at the same time, like society is still frowning on women participating in any kind of business. There were also like photographic equipment salesmen sometimes wouldn't even let women purchase high quality photographic equipment because they didn't believe that women should have access 
to stuff like that. So it wasn't like the easiest time to be like, I'm going to be a photographer and I'm going to make money from it, which is kind of just two crazy ideas at the same time. But Which I feel worked. like now it's just funny because I feel like now photography is more stereotypically something that women do. And yes. it's just funny how those change. I know. But she was like a huge advocate for women entering the professional world, especially being photographers. One of her friends was Frances Benjamin Johnston, who is another female photographer and photojournalist that she met at this time. And in the beginning, she did start out with like kind of wanting to go in more of a fine art direction rather than commerce with her photography. She actually published a photograph of a young woman posing against a medallion of light, giving her kind of like a halo effect. A lot of people compared it to like a European classical painting. And it got published in a magazine called Quarterly Illustrator, which was actually only a year old at the time. It was kind of this like bridge between like art and commercial photography, like the magazine was, because they wanted to like create more of a legitimate art with photography, Mm -hmm. but still like paying people for it. Her teachers, however, like shamed her for publishing the photograph. No way. Um, yeah, because they were like, that is against the fine art code of everything. Like, you earned money from this because it won a prize. Which yeah, is, like, it, so crazy because you would think that they'd be like, wow, congratulations, your work got published. Because now I feel like that's what everyone is striving right? for, right, is to get their art published. <laughs> yeah, just really dumb. So <laughs> she ended up giving away her prize money, which <gasps> is stupid. I don't know how much it was, but, like... But still. Yeah. But however, like a year later, she still ended up publishing like snapshot images from her European trip in the same magazine. Mm. (laughs) So she obviously wasn't too shamed out of it. Yeah. She was like, okay, whatever. And that European trip was a part of continuing her education. She went and spent several weeks in Germany studying the chemistry of photography because obviously photography involved a lot of like dyes and mixing and exposure and all sorts of things at that time it was very complicated process and ended up leaving her daughters with her in-laws in Germany so her husband's parents who still lived there and then ended up spending the rest of the year in France studying with an American painter Frank Dumond in 1895 she ended up returning to Brooklyn because her husband was really sick and the family finances were a little shaky because he had become ill and at this time she basically said I'm going to make money from this no matter what wow which is incredible so only a year later she was an assistant to a Brooklyn portrait photographer Samuel Lifsey Mm-hmm. And under his tutelage, she learned how to run a studio, expanded her knowledge of printing techniques, and kind of learned the ins and outs of actually making money from portrait photography. And during this time, she created 150 portraits of young Brooklyn socialites, which is a lot of photographs. Yeah. <laughs> and it was all in one year. She did 140 portraits of these socialites. And a lot of people have compared them to the style of like old master paintings, mm. which she denied multiple times. She didn't want to compare her photography to classical paintings. But a lot of people said that that's what they they thought of. Her whole ideal that she said was to make likenesses that are biographies, which I love. Yeah, I really like that. I like creating a portrait that tells the story of the person, which mm-hmm. is incredible. She would even spend hours with her subjects to like get them relaxed and be able to take like an accurate picture of them. 
Because nothing is worse than getting a picture taken of you and you're like, what? Is that what I look like? (laughs) Exactly. Also, this is when she became really well known for her heartfelt images of mothers and children that mm-hmm. looked authentic and unposed even when staged for the camera. So which the original is like candid shots. Exactly. She's like, let's let's get this. <laughs> it's gonna look beautiful. <laughs> she also was experimenting a lot with like different photographic papers and processes using like a lot of painterly techniques. I don't know mm. what these words mean, but she used Grum Brishamet. Cool. And it basically allowed it to look more painterly and you had to do it while it was printing. You had to like manipulate the image while it was printing. Oh, cool. Sounds really cool and yeah. amazing. Anyway, I don't know anything about classical photography, but, but it I know it's complicated. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just one year after those 150 portraits, she ended up exhibiting them at the Boston Camera Club, which is a very early photography club in Boston. And which... That's like an insane amount of images to have in an exhibit for yeah. an individual artist. Like 150 photographs. That's a that's a that's lot. That's a lot. And they also were shown in 1897 at Pratt Institute at her alma mater. So they were like, wow. come back, show off your work. That same year, they also had another show for her at the Photographic Society of Philadelphia And she gave a lecture there as well, which is very cool. And she encouraged other women to take up photography. Wow. Which we love to see. She said, I earnestly advise women of artistic tastes to train for the unworked field of modern photography. It seems to be especially adapted to them. And the few who have entered it are meeting a gratifying and profitable success. And sure enough, now a lot of women do photography. So maybe all thanks to this lady. That's something that we've talked about a lot when like anytime there's a new field of art, women are allowed to succeed in it more because it's like, like she said, it's unworked. Yeah. It's a little bit. There's more like less unknown. of the background of patriarchy still supporting yeah. it that they can actually yeah. make breakthroughs. They're like, this is new. I guess we can let you do it. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Give it a shot. Yeah. So it was a great time for her to go into it despite all of the other problems that constantly exist. She opened her first studio in the 1890s in her own home, which was pretty common for women that were pursuing business at that time. Mm. I'm sure because it was safer and also because it was considered more proper. And I'm sure like there's probably like a, oh, they can, you know, be at home with their children still. Yeah, (laughs) yeah exactly. However, (laughs) she ended up moving her operation to the shopping district known as Ladies Mile on Fifth Mm. Avenue in Manhattan. Oh, cool. And which is awesome. She had like a whole photography studio in Manhattan. She styled it as both an art photography practice and a high-end commercial portrait studio. She actually styled the whole studio in simple arts and crafts style, which I wish we had pictures of it because I'm sure it looks beautiful. Amazing. And then she publicized it just enough to alert potential clients, but not so much that it appeared commercial because it was still really a contradiction like she was like really walking that fine line of wanting to be seen as a fine artist but yet still really needed to make a living from this (laughs) and needing to be considered a proper woman something that's really crazy about her is she managed to produce art photographs earn money recruit women into the profession of photography and maintain her social status 
which is just practically impossible. In 1913, she actually gave an interview with the New York Times and after encouraging women once again to take the profession of photography, she said, after my babies came, I was determined to learn to use the brush. I wanted to hold their lovely little faces in some way that should also be my expression. So I went to an art school, two or three of them in fact, But art is long and childhood is fleeting, I soon discovered, and the children were losing their baby faces before I learned to paint portraits. So I chose a quicker medium. Ah, I like that way of viewing photography, too, of just like, you know, almost like a quick way to, I mean, that's what photography is. I'm literally defining it. But you know what I mean? I just love that outlook. It's to capture like the fleeting moments of life. Exactly. There we go. That is more beautifully said than what I was trying to do. (laughs) But the best thing about this explanation, I don't know if she like deliberately did it to like take off some heat or if that's what she actually pursued photography for. Mm. But it kind of diffused any like tensions because she basically said like, oh, I'm doing this so I can better be a mom. My children. Yeah. And that like endeared her to women diffused any threat that the males might feel from like a woman engaged with people not a part of her family so she literally gave it like the most womanly explanation you could to (laughs) the point where it remained extremely proper for her to continue on with her work (laughs) and like was it genuine or was she just really smart i don't know but maybe it was a mix of both (laughs) but yeah it literally was the best thing she could have said to still be able to do all those things like we said like she was producing Mm -hmm. art earning money recruiting women and maintaining her social status we're gonna take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists So my artist spotlight is Mina Lee, I think is how you say her last name. It's M-I-N-A-L-E. And Mm. she is like a fashion commentator, I guess you'd say. I found her through her YouTube, but she's also on TikTok and Instagram. Um, Her Instagram username is Gremlita, G-R-E-M-L-I-T-A. And I think it's the same on TikTok as well. But what I love... (laughs) She did like a whole bunch of videos. She's done a ton on like criticizing fashion in different movies. Mm, That's cool. Which is really cool. And TV shows. And then also like she's also done some other ones like talking about like standardized clothes sizings and why like everyone has different ones and like the history of that. Oh, which is super interesting. Like she definitely dives into like historical and like obviously knows her stuff. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, one of the ones I watched, I'm trying to find it. She went through and talked about all the Disney princesses and whether or not their costumes or, like, dresses are historically accurate. It was a two-part series. So interesting. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) She, like, talked about each time period that each Disney princess is, like, set in and then, like, the different elements of their costume and then also kind of tied in the fact that what, era they were designed in like Mm -hmm. when the movie was released and kind of how it relates to that and then she rated them on historical accuracy and then also just like overall style like how she felt about it regardless of how whether or not it was historically accurate okay yeah (laughs) which is so interesting so like oh my gosh I learned so many things like first off Jasmine is like complete cultural appropriation and they did not do anything traditional for her at all. Which oh, is that's, I mean, really are we surprised? Lame. But no, but yeah, so that one is super interesting. And then like also Pocahontas and Moana kind of like talking about how it was 
closer to traditional styles but like not the right setting Mm, okay just like little details so interesting she also talked about the bridgerton costumes and like whether or not they're historically accurate and like kind of what she would have done differently which is really interesting and then i haven't watched it yet but she goes into like the the marie antoinette movie oh the 2005 marie antoinette I can't think of it, but I know what you're talking about. Yes. Oh, it's such a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. And she talks about like how it's not historically accurate, but why it's perfect anyway. Oh, which is awesome. That's an incredible movie. I actually based a ton of our branding on it. Oh, good to know. So yeah, you should really watch it. I think it's on Amazon Prime. But yeah, she also just has a ton of videos on TikTok and posts some things on her Instagram as well. She's just really fascinating. Cool. Well, I <laughs> am shouting out a rugger, <laughs> an art <laughs> rug, rug maker. How do you say <laughs> I that? that? I, it's not, it can't be rugger, but I, <laughs> I have no idea. I think maybe it should be. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, it's zayu.studio, Z-E-Y-U.studio handmade in berlin and there is an etsy shop for them and it's tufting is that how you say it okay well they're absolutely beautiful i love it so much the vibe of her artwork she does mirrors which is cool too so i think it's just like the outline of the mirrors which like i really want to do she has even like fried egg coasters I was looking at those. Those are so cute. The cutest. And so many daisy rugs. And for those of you who know what I do with my music, I like go by daisy and release pop music. And listen, am I drawn to now everything that has florals and daisies on it? Of course. Absolutely. Am I absolutely drawn to every single thing this woman is doing because it aligns so much with what I would want my artist branding to be? Yes, absolutely. So I'm such a big fan trying to figure out if I can justify spending the money on a daisy rug and I'll find a way (laughs) one day. Um, You must. This is so like, I love her artistry. It's so cool. And like just the overall branding design. She definitely has like a very unique style. I got to get one of these rugs. They're so amazing. That's awesome. I mean, or even just the mirrors. But anyways. I want a little fried egg coaster. I know. A fried egg (laughs) coaster is truly amazing. Oh, that's so cute. And like I said, she does have an Etsy shop where she has, oh my goodness, the full full length mirrors and everything. Total like Y2K vibes. Love it. Oh, yeah. That's awesome rugs what a an incredible rugger i <laughs> i yeah what an incredible rugger indeed i love it um so yeah go check out go check them out they're amazing all right now back to the show something that was also kind of crazy is that she was really good friends with that man Steiglitz that you talked about even though they had some differing views she was really, really good at working when, with him, even though he was notoriously difficult. They were actually really close friends. From 1898 until 1912, they stayed in extremely close contact, as well as her meeting with multiple other famous photographers at the time. And in 1899, 15 of her portraits were included in the Boston Arts and Craft Exhibition. Oh, cool. Which is really cool. And she was one of the very few females that were allowed to be in this competitive photography circle and so they called her granny that was like their nickname for her 
And uh, the quote I found said that it eliminated sexual tensions but did not conceal her natural tendency to act forcefully on her own behalf. Mm. So I think they were like trying to show that they didn't think of her as anything other than like a friend. Okay, yeah. And so they ended up calling her Granny, which is funny because she couldn't have been that much older. I was going to say, like, how old? (laughs) I think she's like in her 40s. They were probably all about the same. Amazing. This is where she entered like a new period of her life, which is also one of her most well-known. Have you heard of the Buffalo Bill Wild West show? Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I feel like anyone who's seen... Anna, get um, your gun? Yes. Or if you've seen Calamity Jane. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Also, another great example. Wild West shows were like a really big deal. I was going to look more into them. There's so much history on them. I I also don't know exactly how like well they're looked at now, if anyone's dived into that. They basically hired Native Americans to reenact famous like battle scenes hmm. from a lot of the okay. early like oh what's it called early migration i guess of okay. the west and i mean that's probably not necessarily like a a great idea <laughs> i was going to say like i'm sensing like a bit problem <laughs> like problematic here yes yeah. <laughs> however they were earning money from it so it was one of the only ways that they could actually make money doing something they already knew how to do if that makes sense like preserving yeah. their culture being able to actually talk to people about like their ceremonial dress and different traditions a lot of them had like booths at some of the wild west shows after where they could sell like their arts and crafts and talk to people about like medicinal herbs and plants they used so kind of controversial but at the time it was really really popular and of course the most well-known is buffalo bill's wild west show yeah and as we talked about earlier as a child case briar was in the colorado territory and she was eight years old and so for like those four years i think she was there she played with a lot of the native american children that were in the territory because they lived very close by and so she had really really fond memories of the native american culture and the sioux indians that she knew so when she was looking out her studio window one day she saw buffalo bill's wild west troop parading past of all these native americans going to perform in the show and all of these memories came up oh it wasn't the sioux indians the lakota people in Mm. colorado so it was the Lakota people that she knew and she had all these fond memories of. So she sent a letter to William Cody, who was Buffalo Bill, and requested permission to photograph the members of the show while they were there in her studio. Oh, cool. And they were the Sioux tribes. That was who he was traveling with. And so even with all the controversy of the show, like William Cody and Gertrude Casebrier are both really well known for their abiding respect of Native American culture. They both had extremely strong friendships with the Sioux Indians. Like there were no hard feelings between the Native Americans and either of them. They were considered a part of like the friendship group. Okay. <laughs> and all Because they had so much respect for Native American culture. So Cody approved Case Buyer's request and she began her project on April 14th, 1898. Something that's also really cool about this is that her pictures of the Sioux Indians were completely artistic. 
They never used them for commercial purposes. Mm. So they never printed them in program booklets or promotional posters for Buffalo Bill's Wild West program. They were all just for artistic purposes, which is really cool. And I think shows a level of respect that she has. It feels less exploitive, so that's good. (laughs) Also, something that was really cool about the images she took is she wanted very relaxed normal portraits to show like the humanity and like the nobleness of these people yeah and most of these photographs are now preserved at the national museum of american history photographic history collection at the smithsonian that's a very long name (laughs) but (laughs) but most of her photos are there so there's two portraits that were mentioned that i want to talk about the first one was with a Native American named Iron Tail. So here's a quote where it talks about it. Preparing for their visit to Case Buyer's Photography Studio, the Sioux at Buffalo Bill's Wild West Camp met to distribute their finest clothing and accessories to those chosen to be photographed. So they were ready, you know, put on their whole ceremonial garb and everything and walk over in their best clothes. Case Breyer admired their efforts, but said in her own words she wanted to photograph a real raw Indian, the kind I used to see when I was a child. So she was kind of like, that's beautiful, but I just want to photograph you as a normal person. You know, like Mm -hmm. the ones that I saw every day out in the fields. So she selected Iron Tail from the group to approach for a photograph, and he didn't have any regalia on. He didn't object And the resulting photograph is exactly what she had envisioned, a relaxed, intimate, quiet, and beautiful portrait of the man, devoid of decoration and finery, presenting himself to her and the camera without barriers. And it's a beautiful photograph. I'll have to post these. It's really, really pretty. He has like the most serene look on his face, which is really cool that she was able to get him so relaxed. Like he's even like slightly smiling. Yeah, I just pulled it up. It's very cool. It's very beautiful. Yeah. However, he hated it. Oh, never mind. (laughs) Several days later, he was given the photograph and he tore it up. He (gasps) said it was too dark and he didn't like it, which is really funny. So a few days later, he did end up going back in his full ceremonial garb and they did take another portrait of him. So there are pictures of him in that as well. I think he felt more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And comfortable. But I love the relaxed portrait of him that's still there. It's, It's really pretty. Oh, there was another thing about that. He was a really big showman, Iron Tail. So he disliked the photo of him looking relaxed because I think he liked to put on more of a show for his, like, mm. you know, persona mm-hmm. he had for Buffalo Bi- Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, she did end up publishing some of the images in magazines, but commented multiple times that she thought the portraits were a revelation of Indian character showing the strength and individual character of the Native Americans in new phases for the Sioux. So it was definitely meant to give them more distinguished places in society. Like she didn't mean anything Mm -hmm. by any of these. One other photograph of a chief that is very notable it was chief flying hawk compared to like all of the others it's kind of crazy because he is glaring but he was having a difficult time with the adjustment of the united states at that time difficult time i mean they literally stole his land so completely justified 
yes, time. But, but still. It's hard to like talk about things like this because I'm like, he was having a difficult time. And it's like, hmm, I wonder what that would be like. <laughs> Imagine that. Like, why would he be having a difficult time in his circumstances? Yeah. Yeah. Like, obviously, I'm completely on the side of like the Native Americans' right to feel however they wanted to feel. Yes. But yeah, just how they described it in the article. He was actually like in nearly all of the fights of the United States troops during the Great Sioux War of 1876, like including the Battle of Little Bighorn, the Death of Crazy Horse, and the Wounded Knee Massacre. So those are like... Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Horribly brutal fights between the Native Americans and the U.S. And he was a part of those. Like he was a main combatant in all of these and then ended up joining Buffalo Bill's Wild West show and having to imitate a lot of these battle scenes from the Great Plains Wars, which is horrible, but it allowed him to escape the constraints and poverty of the Indian reservation. So it was like one of the only ways that he could escape poverty, poverty. and like oh make my. money, which is obviously a huge problem. But like that was one of the reasons why Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was so popular for Native Americans to participate in because mm-hmm. they could actually make money. Yeah. So this portrait of him was taken like shortly after he joined and he was still like struggling with it, which completely valid. However, he ended up learning to appreciate the benefits of being a show Indian and regularly circulate, circulated showgrounds in full regalia and sold his cast card picture po- postcards mm. to promote the show and supplement his income. I um, mean, if you're going to be exploited, <laughs> you exploit them right like, back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's horrible, but I'm I'm glad that they had something that they could, like, rely on because the government wasn't helping them yeah. at all. And they all did consider, like, Buffalo Bill to be a very good friend who actually respected their culture and society. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not 100% behind this. I don't want anyone to think that I am. But I'm glad that they, like, had some way to earn money, Mm -hmm. which is good. So, yeah. Anyway, Iron Tail, the one we talked about before, he ended up passing away in 1916. And Flying Hawk was chosen as his successor in the show to like lead the gala processions as the head of the chief of the Indians. So he ended up taking up a lead role in the Wild West show as well, despite his glaring portrait that we have Mm -hmm. of him. Over the next decade, she took dozens of photographs of the Native Americans in the show, some of them becoming her most famous images. Wow. And something that's also really cool about the pictures she took of them. So there was another photographer at the time named Edward Curtis who also took a lot of pictures of Native Americans, but he actually added in more elements to emphasize his personal vision, while she would sometimes remove items, like even having them, you know, not be in their ceremonial articles or taking off some of the costumes that they were wearing in order to help everyone like concentrate more on the face and stature of the person. Which I mean, I like that. Like the goal is like to humanize them, which is obviously very good. She just wanted to show them for what they were like people (laughs) and not have it be like so sensationalized. Yeah. Everything else, which is really amazing. In 1899, she kind of reached the high of her career 
Alfred Steiglitz, that guy we keep bringing up, he published five of her photographs in a publication called Camera Note and declared her beyond dispute to the leading artistic portrait photographer of the day. And then Joseph Kiley, another friend, wrote a year ago, Case Breyer's name was practically unknown in the photographic world. Today, that name stands first and unrivaled, which is incredible. Like these are very prominent photographers at the time and they're calling her this basically. This is like the, what they're, yeah. yeah. Also that same year, her print of the manger, which is a beautiful picture. It's, it's so pretty. It's of like a mother and child by a window in kind of what looks like a barn. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it almost looks like a little ghostly because yeah. of the lighting, but it's so pretty. It's beautiful. Just gorgeous. And you can see why it's called the manger, like very reminiscent of like Mary Mm -hmm. Jesus. But that print of that photograph sold for $100, which was the most ever paid for a photograph at that time. Wow. Yes. Like here we have proof that women made more money than men at one point. (laughs) And that record actually stood for, I think, 50 years of being the most that a print of a photograph ever sold for. Wow. Which is amazing. Like that's quite the feat. She also gathered a ton of accolades at this time. She was called the foremost professional photographer in the United States and the Newark Photography Salon. She was one of the first two women elected to Britain's linked ring, which was another photography thing. The next year, Charles H. Caffin published his landmark book, Photography is a Fine Art, and devoted an entire chapter to her, calling it Gertrude Casebrier and the Artistic Commercial Portrait. Steiglitz included Casebrier as a founding member of the Photo Succession, which was like a group he founded. And then he also presented an exhibition of Casebrier photographs along with Clarence H. White at his little galleries of the Photo Succession. Wow. Which is incredible. So she was everywhere. Yeah, honestly. However, like her professional personal life kind of began to be very strained. Her husband ended up deciding to move to Oceanside, Long Island, which distanced her from the New York Artistic Center because she obviously had to follow him. (laughs) No, they don't seem to have liked each other that much. She had to go. She had to go. I guess she wasn't allowed to remain in New York, but then she ended up just going to Europe instead. So I don't know why she had to follow him to Long Island. Yeah, she just took a trip to Europe, and from some connections she had met, she ended up photographing the reclusive Augustus Rodin, which, I mean, I'm not his biggest fan because of our Camille Claudel episode. But but he is famous. He is famous, and he was a very big deal, so it is really cool that she was able to take his portrait. When she returned to New York, this conflict rose up between her and her good old friend Steiglitz, who was hard to work with her strong interest in the commercial side of photography especially because she was supporting a lot of like her husband and family Mm. at this time was directly at odds with what he viewed photography to be like he thought it should be very anti-materialistic and idealistic and Uh. so the more commercial success she got the worse he felt about her work and her role as like a true artist wow because you can't make money off of art. Otherwise, you're not an artist. Another thing was he like really refused the idea of gaining financial success from mm-hmm. photography. So oftentimes, if a buyer really appreciated his art, he would sell it at like way less than its market value. 
And the problem with this too is that he was also selling original prints by other photographers way less than their market value if the other people really appreciated it or something. Wow. Yeah. And when he did sell prints, he took many months before paying the photographer for the work. So if he was selling your work for you, you wouldn't get your money for months Like, who knows when you'd actually get the money for it. Love that. Yeah. And so after several years of, like, protesting this and just being like, you can't keep doing that, she ended up resigning from the photo succession. She was the first member to actually resign. Wow. Which made him very mad especially when she joined the professional photographers of new york which was a newly formed organization and steiglitz viewed them as the complete antithesis of everything he stood for i mean commercializing that's so annoying it's like everything i stand (laughs) for it's like oh yeah paying people for their work oh i hate that (laughs) and like commercial photography he just thought it was an abomination yeah of his existence so he really distanced himself from Case Breyer, and they never really gained a relationship back the way that they had had it before, mm. which is very sad because they had a great relationship going for him. Maybe good riddance. Yeah, definitely. Also, during this time, her husband got very sick again, and as much as she like really was mad at him, it's also kind of interesting that right after he died, her career kind of went down as well. Mm. I don't know if it's just a coincidence or yeah. if maybe like actually having him there in some way was helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, he got really, really sick in 1908, 1909. And then she returned back home and he passed away in December of 1909. And then her mother shortly passed away the next year. And her mother had actually helped out a ton with, like, running her household. So that probably mm. also played a role in, like, her, her career kind having... of winding down. But, yeah. She, I mean, was pretty thrilled that he was dead. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but at the same time, like, it didn't really end up being the blessing that she was hoping for. She established the Women's Professional Photographers Association of America which is awesome. That is cool. But then at this time, Steiglitz, instead of just distancing himself from her, began to publicly speak out about her work. Because it's not enough to just not like someone. You have to tear them down. He also turned her friend, we talked about him a little bit, Joseph T. Kiley, against her. He like made a highly critical attack that was published in Steiglitz's publication camera work which is crazy because like the the drama of the photographer world like (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) and it's crazy too because he was the one who called her like one of the the best of yeah like the best photographer unrivaled of the age and she even said like case Breyer was like i don't know why he suddenly changed his opinion of me but she assumed it had to do with steig she also helped clarence h white found the group pictorial photographers of america which Steiglitz also got really mad about. This Um, Steiglitz guy, (laughs) he's got to go. Yeah. At this time, he actually was offending a ton of other friends too, though, because of like, you know, he was still selling prints for way less than their market value, taking forever to pay people and like freaking out about anyone. That's like a really good way to lose friends. (laughs) Yeah. And so a bunch of his friends ended up leaving as well. And he was forced to disband his little group. Also at this time, a lot of young women 
that were starting out in photography sought out Case Briar as a mentor just for help with both her photographic artistry and also just her inspiration as like running a studio and being an independent woman in photography. So there among them were like Clara Saprell, Consuelo Kunaga, Laura Guplin, Florence Maynard, and Imogene Cunningham. For the next like 10 years throughout the 1910s and 20s, she expanded her portrait business and took a ton of portraits of very important people like Robert Henry, John Sloan, William Glackens, Arthur B. Davies, Mabel Dodge, and Stanford White. She actually ended up having her daughter join her in her portrait business in 1924. And then just a couple of years later, however, she ended up liquidating the contents of her studio and giving up photography where she was pretty much constrained to the kind confines of her home just for like health reasons. Mm. She did give like a major solo exhibition at the Brooklyn Institutes of Arts and Sciences, which is like her last main thing before she ended up passing away in October of 1934 at her daughter's home she would have been 82 wow yeah i found a quote that said case Breyer's life was an american success story rising from the frontier origins to fine art from precarious means to financial stability she rose to the top and maintained her position in a fiercely competitive field artistically and financially when her closest counterparts abandoned art photography for needlework and garden photography Although her fame diminished for a while, Case Breyer's work has been rediscovered, and more than a century after she began her career, her photographs continue to be acclaimed for their beauty and the universality of the themes that they evoke. I mean, I just did a light Google search of just her photos, and they really are just stunning. Aren't they just beautiful? Mm -hmm. They have, like, this dreaminess to them, which I'm assuming is how she, like, printed them. But they all just look like slightly foggy. And like you said, like kind of ghostish, but like it yeah. makes them very beautiful. Oh, yeah. They're beautiful. I understand why people compared it to fine art, like fine mm-hmm. art portraits. Like I can 100% see that. I know. I'm like, um, I, how do I get a print of these to yeah. put it in my home? These are some of these are just so beautiful. They're really, really pretty. I'll post a ton of them, of course, but I just think it's amazing. Like she was able to do so much as a woman and especially like her respect for indigenous people Mm -hmm. and not like exploiting them in any way, but trying to show like the dignity and humanity behind them. Yeah. And then just helping inspire future women photographers. I know that's amazing that like you said, the fact that she was able to do so much and you know, like encouraging other women actively and Mm -hmm. becoming such a strong person in her own field, I think just shows what an outstanding woman she was, but also just how incredibly talented. And I also just love the fact that she went back to do this after she had her kids of just being like, I want to be an artist. I'm going to go be an artist. Like, I don't know. I just, I really admire people. And we talked about this on this podcast so much of like feeling like you need to find your passion and your calling when you're a child and like you know all the emphasis that's put on child prodigies but like no Mm -hmm. you don't you don't have to do it from the time you're 15 you can you can start when you're in your what late 30s is that when she went to Uh school yeah 37 still be like the best in your field at a time for what you can do yeah like definitely considered one of the best photographers literally a whole chapter in a photography textbook and yet did I talk about her when we learned about the history of photography no, mm-hmm. not that I remember. So. <laughs> <She's> beautiful. <laughs> well, I am glad now we can add a photographer to our yes. list of artists. I can't believe it's been o- over a year and we haven't done a photographer Ugh. until now. 
there are so many industries mm-hmm. <laughs> and like styles and everything else. We're never going to be done, Sadie. No, we're never going to be done, <laughs> which is good news for all of our listeners. We'll always yes. be here with more and more women artists. Definitely. We're never running out. Mm-mm. And the fun part is, is that next week we get to do our awesome Grammys episode. <gasps> yeah. So, Grammy recap. Because the Grammys are tonight. We're recording tonight. this episode a little late. And so I think they like <laughs> officially start in 45 minutes. Oof, I will be going we'll to, to go off. <laughs> also, by the way, I just saw Olivia Rodrigo got her first win of the night with best pop solo performance. So oh, nice. for driver's How license. How did they already start? Wait, if they, they do, haven't started yet? They announce a lot like during the day leading oh. up to the ceremony and then during the actual ceremony, the televised ceremony, they'll do the main awards. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So that one well, good for announced. Olivia. Bless her heart. She is now um, a Grammy winner. That's awesome. And I hope there's many more women to come tonight. <laughs> I know. So we'll do a Grammy <laughs> recap next week. Yes. If you're not a music lover, still tune in because it'll all be things current women in the arts. I'm sure. Definitely. And last year we did like our little who would have won the Grammys if we were in charge, like oh, our audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tune on to Instagram for that to vote in the polls. We'll be doing it again. It's way too much fun. Thank you again for tuning in. We will be back next week with more women and more artists. And mm-hmm. if you love the podcast, catch us on Instagram, morethanamuse.podcast. Yes. Leave us a rating and review. Send it to your best friend. Mm-hmm. And we love you. Yes, we do. We really do. And see you next time. Bye. Bye. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.